Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. You're listening to KCBS In-Depth. Really, in order to find quality care, you often have to be on a wait list that's months long. The people, places, and issues the Bay Area is talking about. The aggressive advocates who were looking to overrule Roe for so long, they really had no idea of the consequences they might be opening up. In this case, there very well may be charges that are appropriate. For example, trying to obstruct an official proceeding of Congress, right? That is unlawful. This is KCBS In-Depth. Recently, an institution of the Bay Area LGBTQ world announced that it would be making a comeback. The Stud, an iconic queer bar in San Francisco with an over 50-year history in the city, closed up shop, at least physically, in 2020 during the coronavirus pandemic shutdown. And many feared that the venue itself would stay closed. But the collective who runs the bar have found a new location. They're in the midst of raising funds for the move now. And this news has opened up a sense of hope that the queer spaces here in the Bay Area and beyond won't just fade away. Welcome to KCBS In-Depth, broadcasting throughout the Bay Area and streaming on the Odyssey app. I'm Mary Hughes. So why are queer spaces, and in particular queer bars, so important to hold on to? I'm going to delve into this question and more with Gregor Matson, professor and chair of sociology at Oberlin College and Conservatory and author of Who Needs Gay Bars? Professor Matson, thank you so much for speaking with me. Thanks for having me. So as you just heard me say, one of the most well-known and beloved uh, queer bars here in the Bay Area is making its return. And that did get me thinking about the nature of queer spaces and, and queer bars, queer clubs, the sort of changing landscape that we're seeing when it comes to these institutions and that's a lot of what you look at in your book is 
who needs these places and, and what are their relevance to the community now compared to, say, 10, 20, 30 years ago? What prompted you to write this book? So I live in a small town outside of Cleveland. So I've got about a 45 minute drive to get to my nearest uh, LGBTQ plus bar. And in about 2013 or 14, my favorite bar closed and I was disturbed, but many gay men in Cleveland were like, we don't need gay bars anymore. Um, Every bar is a gay bar that I go to. And yet in the bars and restaurants that took the place of what had been my favorite gay bar, which was called A Man's World, so it wasn't always as welcoming to everybody in the LGBTQ plus community, um, many of these newer places were not class diverse, they weren't as racially diverse, and they weren't as gender diverse as the as the bar that had come before. And so when I went looking for information about, you know, our gay bars closing, there was no data and I am a sociologist, I had time on my hands, and so I built a database to track gay bar openings and closings over the last, well, back to 1972, so that I could see that, in fact, um, between 2002 and 2023, about 45% of, of LGBTQ plus bars, gay bars and lesbian bars went away. And that prompted me to want to talk to the people who had the information about the financials and about changes in patronage. So I drove around the country interviewing gay bar owners and managers, about 130 of them in over 300 bars in 39 states. What an amazing travelogue uh, to have there uh, in, in doing this book. And, you know, obviously you're talking to the owners and you're getting information, but you're also getting an idea of who, who goes to these bars and to these clubs. And that gets me thinking a little bit about when I would uh, go to the nearest uh, queer club slash bar that I knew of when I was younger in North Carolina. And it would take me about, you know, an hour to get there. But the last time I was there, it was very much not just populated by those in the LGBTQ plus community, I did see a lot of what seemed to be, anyway, heterosexual couples, um, bachelorette parties, a lot more of that kind of thing than perhaps what I was used to. And that does bring up thoughts and questions about queer spaces and ownership of them, because there, there is something to be said for these spaces that are created by and for queer people, but then you don't want to be a place that doesn't accept, you know, everyone into it and really be, you want it to really be a safe space for all. So, you know, how is the gay bar evolving right now? I think The gay bar is evolving in different ways, depending upon its geography. One of the things I became interested in are what I was calling outposts, gay bars that are more than an hour's drive from the nearest other gay bar. And often these gay bars are the only gay bar for hundreds of miles around. So they're attracting people who are willing to drive, you know, two hours on a Friday night to come out. And those bars were more alike than I thought. I had anticipated that I would find the Appalachian gay bar, the Southern gay bar, the 
far Western gay bar. And these bars have long depended on straight people in small towns and in rural areas. Maybe there were never enough of us to keep a bar going. And we have always had allies, our siblings, our friends from high school who wanted to go out with us. And so those owners talked about how uh, straight people had long been a big percentage of their patronage. Maybe, you know, maybe they're more now. Um, but it got me thinking about, you know, if you are in a really red county in a really red state and you are a straight person who's really pro-gay and vocally so, that sort of puts you on the outs too. To some degree, the what the larger cities are seeing as more and more straight allies come to our spaces is something that the small city gay bars have experienced for the last 40 years. So if we want to look to how do you balance being open to everyone um, and maintaining your queer character, we can look to those bars. So it sounds like being more inclusive might be the answer and that that some bars have really found that magic trick, right, of, of staying queer-centric, but also welcoming to everyone and managing to to keep the doors open. But so many places have not been able to do that. I know when I was first making trips out to California before I moved here, um, I had people who said, oh, when you come out here, we'll take you to the Lexington, a well-known bar in the area, uh, especially for queer women. And by the time I got here, it was gone. And that seems to be the case with a lot of places. Then we've seen this steady decline of the more traditional or perhaps familiar queer bars and clubs. Is it that sort of maybe inability to, to move with the times and to become more inclusive? Did you find that that's why we're seeing a loss of, of these places that we've known and loved? So if we think about a classic gay bar or lesbian bar as being a by, by and for only gay or lesbian or queer people, those kind of bars are on the decline. And another kind of bar that's on the decline is bars that only serve one gender. So the heyday of lesbian bars was in the late 80s or the mid 80s, and they've been on a steady decline. Um, there's been a steady decline in bars that only serve cis gay men. Um, the big trend over the last 30 years has been the rise of bars that serve all LGBTQ plus people. And once you start inviting all people, it becomes even harder to tell who is LGBTQ plus in the, in the space. I know, you know, for big cities, the bachelorette parties were really, um, um, you know, uh, uh, bugaboo that people didn't like. And yet the minute you try and kick out a bachelorette party, you end up accidentally kicking out the bisexual woman who's getting married, whose friends brought her to the bar where she had met one of her girlfriends. And so it was a queer party. It just didn't look like it from the outside. So I think policing the boundaries of queerness is always a losing proposition and is not very queer in and of itself. And yet I think bars that preserve their queer character, empower their patrons to sort of say, this is what's acceptable in this in this space. No, uh, when the drag 
performer is on the stage, you don't get to get up on the stage unless you're invited. No, you don't get to touch the drag performer. Um, we show our appreciation with tips, $1 bills and not screaming. And those are ways that we can teach our allies how to behave in our spaces and follow our norms and, you know, adapt to our particular sense of humor, which is one of the things that brings me out to, to queer bars. I, I appreciate that a lot. Um, this this uh, ability to share queer spaces with other people, but also use it as a guiding moment to say, you know, this is how to behave in a queer space and this is how to, to show respect. And obviously there are, you know, bigger, broader uh, conversation points to be made about about being more welcoming and about having our allies close instead of, you know, distanced from us. But then there is, there is the financial side to keeping the doors open to more people. Um, you know, here in the Bay Area, it, it's incredibly expensive to to have a home, to have uh, an apartment, a condo, whatever. And it's expensive to keep a business going. And that's something we learned in particular uh, during the coronavirus pandemic. We saw what that could do to small businesses. And even the stud is having to raise half a million dollars to facilitate this venue change and to to begin again. Um, were those some of the conversations that you had with these bar owners? Um, how much does the financial and economic situation of this day and age play a part in their ability or inability to, to keep the doors open and the people coming? Yeah, the the pandemic saw a, about a 15% decline in the number of gay bars between 2019 and 2021 in that during that time when we had public order closures and bars had restricted res, uh, restricted occupancy but the the sort of bright side of that statistic is that was the same percentage of decline that we saw in the two years before the pandemic so or the COVID-19 pandemic. So, you know, I had expected a washout and instead we saw kind of a slow and steady decline in the two years since uh, 2021. There's actually been a rebound in the number of gay bars, not quite to 2019 levels, but it's the first increase in the number of gay bars since uh, 1992, 1997. So we may be experiencing somewhat of a renaissance, thanks Beyonce. It's also the case that crowdfunding is one of the strategies that a lot of bars turn to, and most of them were not successful. Uh, one of the things we know about crowdfunding is it really depends on existing networks of people. It's kind of rare that you throw your hat out and get strangers from um, across across the country or across the world. Um, one of the most successful crowdfunders was uh, a black gay bar in Harlem, New York. And at the time, they were the only Black-owned gay bar in, in Harlem. And they really, you know, people sort of were attracted to this idea that we've got to preserve a Black gay bar in Harlem. And so they got donations from all over the world into the six figures. But these kind of six-figure um, donations often depend on one or two very large benefactors. And one of the challenges that gay bars face is 
we often treat them like a community center. And in some parts of the country, they are the node, the hub for all LGBTQ plus activism. And it's where the PFLAG chapter meets and this kind of thing. Um, but they're private businesses. So they're not eligible for the kind of foundation support that a nonprofit might otherwise have access to. So for the stud, I saw that that uh, that ask of a half million and I was like, Okay, tech bros, time to level up. You want to show your queer support? Well, we don't need it just in the month of June. It's time to get your friends, pony up, and do us all a solid. Exactly. There you go. It, you know, it will be interesting to see the trajectory of the fundraising for the stud, especially since this is such a well-known place and with such a huge amount of history. I mean, uh, I went there when I lived in Oakland. You know, I have really good <laughs> memories of the stud. Yeah, that that's such a big part of what we're talking about here is, you know, places like the stud, they, you know, obviously there there's the, the financial side that has to be thought about. And there's the way that it, it is a place that serves the queer community now. I mean, it is a worker owned establishment, which is a rarity these days. Absolutely. It's incredibly rare for it to be run by a collective. There's very few other worker-owned LGBTQ plus bars. And in that way, the stud really was, you know, seemed to be a model for the way that a bar could move forward. And then along came the pandemic and they lost their space. So, um, yeah, the the stud is really special. It's got a deep history in the terms of the performers who used to be there, Etta James, Sylvester, um, you know, I certainly got to see things I hadn't seen before when I was there, the sort of edgy shows, go-go dancers, um, the drag show that uh, got discontinued but was partially known or uh, part-time known as, as T-Shack. You know, um, that was the first time I saw drag as a performance art before I had thought of it as, you know, gender play. But you know, when you see uh, a drag artist come out dressed as Jean Benet Ramsey and do a strip tease to Good Ship Lollipop, and before she unfurls, that, that's when you know that this is not just gender play. This is politics. This is activism. This is, you know, teaching me as a young queer person that I could expect more out of life. And that has to definitely, I think, be a part of the conversation, right? When you talk about places like the stud and the experiences that you had there and that many others have had there. And when we talk about these queer clubs and bars, uh, the ones from our memories and the ones that are still holding on, you know, obviously they serve as a place for the queer community now in new and different ways, but they're also places of history. You know, um, so much of the LGBTQ plus community, a lot of our history was lost after the 80s and, and after the AIDS epidemic. And, you know, in the conversations that, that you've had in doing this book, is it possible to have a place be both, to, to be somewhere where the, the history and and those touchstones still exist and are still vital to to our modern queer world and have it also evolve into something new that can survive it, are, are both possible yeah no i i think it's a little bit of both we can w the places have to evolve they're 
it's not that the queer bar is dying, it's evolving. Um, there's been a transition towards all gender. I think that that's great. We have been organizing, organizing politically as an LGBTQ plus community, and that means all of us. And so it, I think it's quite natural that we want to party together. Um, but we also have to accept that if we are spending some of our money at the straight bar, at the Applebee's, at the Chi-Chi's, then we also are not spending the money in our in our own spaces. And I think that's fine. Drag has been, I think there are more drag queens and drag kings and drag artists living today than there ever have been in civilization before. And this drag artistry brings in a lot of our allies. They like watching a particular TV show that shall go unnamed. And it is teaching them some of our sense of humor. And what it's not teaching them is how to be around, uh, to be in community with us. The, the One of the big changes about our history is a lot of it has moved online. And I think that's great. The fact that young LGBTQ plus folks can log on to TikTok under the covers of their bed and watch an endless stream of non-binary people being non-binary in different ways. Uh, you know, I wish I'd had that when I was young. For those of us who are older, and I'm slowly embracing my queer elder status around a bunch of 19-year-olds here, they, they have something I didn't have. The only way for me to see queer people was to go out. The only place I could reliably find queer strangers was to go out. And these days we can order in. Um, you can watch Heartstopper on Netflix. There's endless shows on HBO and we can sort of summon queer content. And I think there's a value to that. But one of the things the pandemic taught us was there is something deeply human about being needing to be around other humans. And for queer people, we need to be around other queer people. One of the things that you can't get from a TikTok video is seeing other people's reactions. You know, maybe you didn't quite get it, but the fact that everyone around you, especially maybe all the people over 60, find it hilarious, you know, that teaches you like, oh, something camp just happened. And I don't know the reference to Mommy Dearest or to Mildred. But I need my elders to teach me those things. And one of the lovely things about queer spaces is unlike the algorithm that is sorting your content by your particular identity and often by your age group, when you're out in public, you get to meet people across the queer community who you wouldn't maybe otherwise rub shoulders with. And yes, they might hit on you, but yes, they might teach you something. And sometimes both can happen at the same time. I think that's a, a lovely way to look at this, that that queer spaces like this can not only be a place to, to have a good time or, you know, to meet the potential, you know, romantic entanglement, but it can be a place of learning and it can help a person grow into their identity. You can learn from the books, but you got to do your practical exams. And for that, you've got to go out and try out that outfit and see whether you measure up or show off that new undercut and that new hairstyle and see, you know, how do the other theys and thems respond? So those are the kind of things that we really need from each other, I think, as Queer folks, maybe he grew up in the era where physical were the only place that we had. I think we need to help keep these places alive for the young folks. So we've definitely covered a lot of ground here. But what was your biggest takeaway from writing this book and and what you discovered about the the bars and the queer spaces around the country? 
one of the things I really took away from writing the book is how freaking diverse our places are. Like sometimes we treat gay bars like they're interchangeable, but when a bar closes, if it takes the drag stage with it, then a lot of performers go without money to eat. If the bar that closes was the bar that served the women and non-binary community, then suddenly maybe drag kings don't have a place to, to perform or the, the bar that would reliably pass around a hat for people's top surgeries, maybe that bar goes away. So I think we have to look at the diversity of our spaces and also the way in which one space can serve a lot of different communities at different times of the night and day. So sometimes um, when I was writing the book, people older than me would say, you know, bars are a young person's game. And I was like, have you been to a gay bar at 4 p.m. on a Thursday? Like the retirees hold down the bar and they are holding court. And that's some of my favorite times to go just because, A, I like to be in bed early, but B, they're hilarious and I still have a lot to learn. So I think, you know, I had another person who I really respect who said, you know, there's no bars for me. 30-year-old Black folks here in Detroit. And I was like, organize it. Put it out on the internet. Say, it's 30-plus, you know, Black gay folks' time at the bar. I was like, I know other people are hungry for the thing that you want, and you can be that catalyst that brings people together. And I think for queer people, we need to kind of take ownership of our spaces. I think there's a way to do that without being exclusionary about inviting people in, about saying, hey, girl, it's time for you to sit down, sit back and pay attention to how other people are doing it. We're happy you're here. You know, that's a way that we can bring people into our norms and sort of make the world a little queerer one person at a time. And having spaces like the stud making a return and and the queer spaces that are out there now you know, they can serve as a place for the queer community and a space for the allies to the queer community, especially in a time where there's a lot of anti-drag and a lot of anti-trans sentiments going around. It can, spaces like this can create solidarity. And, you know, we can do that as just as customers to say, you know, I've noticed, you know, we're in a black majority city, but none of our bartenders seem to be black here. Or, you know, this is a drag show, but none of our trans performers who've been innovators and originators of the art form are on the stage. You know, why don't we book a more diverse show? Why don't we hire some more diverse staff? That's something we can ask of our owners. And I think many of them are open to hearing suggestions like that. So having ownership is about showing solidarity within the community and across our own differences, because we are really freaking diverse. And we all have a lot to learn about a ways that we can show solidarity with each other. Gregor Matson, professor and chair of sociology at Oberlin College and Conservatory, author of Who Needs Gay Bars. Professor Matson, I want to thank you so much for speaking with me today. This is great. No, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Go stud. Professor Matson and I discussed earlier in the program, the stud in San Francisco 
is looking for donations and if you are someone who is interested in donating, you can go to givebutter.com slash stud2024. Um, they are, of course, seeking funds for their move and to help secure a new home for San Francisco's oldest queer bar. You can find this episode and past episodes of In-Depth online at kcbsradio.com. Just check the podcast tab and look for KCBS In-Depth. You can also hear the episodes on the Odyssey app. Download the app on your smartphone and favorite KCBS radio. Thanks for listening. For KCBS and In-Depth, I'm Mary Hughes. You've been listening to KCBS In-Depth. Get every episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other podcast platforms. Visit kcbsradio.com for more news and interviews. We are the Bay Area's news station, KCBS. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. 